Do you think God has things that he wants us to do? That he appoints us to do? It's an interesting thought. Listen to what we learn about David. This, is, uh, this, this right here is, should be a great challenge for all of us. <clears throat> In Acts 13, 36, <clears throat> it says, After David had served the purpose of God in his lifetime, he died. I don't know about you, but that would be my great desire, to serve the purpose of God in my life, over the course of my life. Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. And now your host, Richard E. Simmons III. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for this day as we get to the end of another work week. We're just grateful for our lives, uh, for the health you've blessed us with. Lord, just pray that you would uh, use this time to really speak into our lives. uh, For we truly uh, recognize that we're weak, uh, that we're needy, and we're just grateful to have you who provides us with real strength. Making that verse be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So I do pray that you would strengthen us, that you would enlighten us this morning as we read your scripture. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> today, we're, we're really going to spend some time today. This is a really fascinating lesson. Uh, it's, we've had some really good uh, studies this week on this. We're going to really kind of look at the Apostle Paul's story. Uh, and... Uh, a lot is revealed about Paul's life in Galatians 1 and 2. is kind of autobiographical. <clears throat> um, but I think before doing that, to really kind of set the, the, uh, <clears throat> the tone for this study and, and really to really give you context, um, it's important that we, and I think most everybody here um, is familiar with uh, the Apostle Paul's conversion. Uh, he was Saul of Tarsus. Does that name ring a bell? And it's kind of interesting. Um, he shares his conversion in the book of Acts three separate times. In Acts 9, verses 1 through 19, in Acts 22, 1 through 22, and Acts 26, 4 to 23. And it's kind of like the one where I'm going to read to you uh, just part of one of these. But it's kind of like he, he, he finds him, you know, he's, Paul's always in trouble, you know, with the, the, with the authorities. And this King Agrippa, which I'm here to read, he, you know, they say, what? You, know, you used to be Saul of Tarsus. What in the world's happened to you? He said, you ain't going to believe what happened. And then he tells them the story. And I'm just going to pick up, we're going, I'm, I'm just going to read a few, few uh, sentences from uh, chapter 26. Um, 4 through 11, he talks about his life as Saul of Tarsus. And then in verse 12, it says, While thus engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. He was going to get some prisoners, Christians, to bring them back to have them put in jail or executed. So I was on my way doing that. <clears throat> and... At midday, O king, and he's talking to King Agrippa, who's the who is the Jewish king. And just so make sure you understand this, uh, the Romans allowed the Jews to have a king. 
You remember Herod was the king when Jesus was crucified. And just 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 to, to, to remind you what happened, uh, Jesus goes before Pilate, who was the Roman procurator. And he says, this is, what y'all are, are, are bringing, this matter with Jesus is a religious matter. Y'all tend to it. And he sent him to Herod. You remember that? And the problem was Herod didn't have the authority to execute it. And that's what they wanted. So he sends them back to Pilate. And Pilate says, he hadn't done anything wrong to deserve dying. And of course, they pressured him into letting them crucify him. <clears throat> and so... <clears throat> He says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me as well. And when we all had fallen to the ground on our faces, I, I, I inserted that, <clears throat> I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And it's kind of interesting, because Jesus is dead. I mean, he's died, he's resurrected, he's gone to heaven. And he says, he doesn't say, you're persecuting my people, you're persecuting me. And I think that's significant. He's saying that if you persecute my people, you're persecuting me, because I live within each one of them. My spirit does. <clears throat> um, and then... <clears throat> He says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but arise, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you in the future. That's significant. Keep that in mind. I will deliver you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, and this is what you're going to be seeking to do. This is very powerful. to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they might receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. And then you, you read in verse 16 where it says, you know, God appointed Paul to do this. And in Acts 9.15, he says, Saul is a chosen instrument of mine. A chosen instrument. In chapter 22, again, God says, get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that's been appointed for you to do. And in John 17.4, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, Lord, I, um, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you have given me to do. <clears throat> And so that's an interesting thought. <clears throat> do the work that I've given you to do. I've got something, or I've appointed you to do, as it says in Acts 26. You think God has things that he wants us to do, that he appoints us to do? It's an interesting thought. Listen to what we learned about David. This, is, uh, this, th this right here is, should be a great challenge for all of us. In Acts 13.36, it says, After David had served the purpose of God in his lifetime, he died. I don't know about you, but that would be my great desire, to serve the purpose of God in my life, over the course of my life, and to die. <laughs> 
So this is something to think about, and we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. But hopefully what happened to Saul, hopefully you'll see what happened to Saul, the great enemy of the church. We see this radical conversion. But what happens to him next? I think there's this assumption that he just goes out and starts doing his work. But that's not what happens. I think this is instructive to us, what we're going to look at. So if you're at Galatians 1, if you're not, please turn to it. Hold on, let me let these guys in. All right, for you guys that I've just let in, um, we're in Galatians 1, and I would like for everybody to read, if they would, silently, verses 11 through 24. Galatians 1, 11 through 24. Think about... Um, the other 12, think about it. you've got, thir- people don't, I don't think realize this, there's 13 apostles. Now, you have to understand that um, you had 12 disciples, right? And Judas kills himself. So you have 11. And then you appoint, then uh, uh, Matthias was appointed to replace Judas. They drew lots. And uh, so you had those 12 disciples who then became, when Jesus was leading there, he appointed them as apostles. And apostles had authority. I think they had a really special relationship um, with the Holy Spirit. Um, Remember Jesus says, um, before he dies, he says, I'm going to send the helper. Remember that? I'm going to send the helper. And he will lead you into all truth. And he will bring to remembrance all that uh, you have I've, all that you have heard of what I have said. And that's why all the all the books of the New Testament, you know, there are there were a slew of letters and books that people wanted to include in the New Testament. But there's there's the most important <laughs> qualification was they had to have apostolic authority. And therefore, all of the books of the New Testament, but three, are written by apostles. The three that are not have been approved by Peter and Paul. And that's Luke and Acts, both written by Luke, and then Mark. I'm almost positive I got that right. So you had 13 apostles, but think about the 12. Um, how were they trained? How did the 12, where, how'd they get, what, what about their training? By Jesus. They got it by Jesus. They, they spent three years with him. And so he trained them, but think about it. They were just kind of normal guys. Fishermen, tax collectors, not really well-educated people. But that was not the case with Paul. <clears throat> he had several things they did not have. First of all, in Acts 23, it says Paul spoke with the Hebrew dialect. But then in Acts 31, excuse me, 21, he was speaking to this Roman commander who was trying to save him from this Jewish mob. Paul was always, he was always basically, they were they were always out to try to target him. And the Roman commander said, So you speak Greek. He was speaking Greek to it. So you speak Greek, which is really unusual for Jews. 
And if you remember in Acts 17, he speaks, he, he uh, delivers this powerful sermon at Mars Hill, which is in Athens, Greece. And he speaks to all these scholarly <coughs> Greek philosophers and poets. So Paul could speak two languages, which was not true of the, uh, of the other apostles, unless they learned it, unless they learned Greek. <coughs> but in Acts 22, he says, Paul says, I was trained by Gamaliel, who John Stott said was the most eminent Jewish teacher at that time. So Paul was an Old Testament scholar. He's a Pharisee. And then he has this radical encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so here you have this man with this incredible ability, this incredible education, and he hated the church. His goal was to wipe it out, and he becomes the greatest of all the apostles, in my opinion. And so what an interesting life. But the question is, after he has this radical conversion, what happens next? And that's what he tells us here in Galatians 1. In verses 16 and 17 that you've read, he says, he did not go straight. He did not go straight to see any of the other apostles. He says, I didn't consult with flesh and blood. And it's kind of interesting. This was, this was pointed out to me. We're not really sure exactly of the timeline. So let me show you, tell you what I mean by that. In Galatians 1, you know, he says, uh, he says, I did not immediately consult flesh and blood, verse 16, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. We don't know for how long. And then I returned once more to Damascus. So we're not sure what that time period. Some people say it was a couple of years. And then three years later, I went to Jerusalem, become acquainted with Cephas, and Cephas is Peter. So the question I think a lot of people have is, and by the way, wouldn't that have been interesting to be uh, a fly on the wall, to hear the conversation, 15 days of conversation between Peter and Paul? I mean, they were two very strong-willed, fiery individuals. And I'm sure Paul asked him all kinds of questions about his Peter's time with Jesus. And I'm sure, I mean, it, I, I just, I'm sure it was fascinating. <clears throat> but anyway, um, what did Paul do during that period of time? It, you know, it really, it doesn't say. It, it kind of does. <coughs> but... John Stott believes it was likely that Paul went into Arabia for quiet and solitude. Why well, he says, I did not confer with flesh and blood. I was by myself. And then it says, after he returned from Arabia for three, three years, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced he probably, and Stott believes this as well, he spent a lot of time reading and meditating on the Old Testament scriptures. Because, guys, the, the Old Testament so clearly points to the new. And I, I bet Paul had a lot of aha moments when, oh man, this makes sense now. But I'm also convinced that the Holy Spirit was present 
just like he was present, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, in Luke 4. And this is just my opinion, but I believe strongly that this happened. Remember in Luke 4, 1, Jesus is getting ready to start his ministry, his public ministry, and he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. You remember what Luke 4, 1 says? He was led around in the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. I just believe that Paul, in his time of silence, had a lot of time where the Holy Spirit was teaching and instructing him. Because Jesus said to the disciples, he's going to come, he's going to lead you into all truth. And I think that's, <coughs> Paul had a lot of that. But I think this is so significant, what I'm going to share with you. And this is important for us as well. Um, back, hold on, let me, let me stop. <laughs> I get going and I forget to stop. Does anybody have any comments or questions so far? Any of you on Zoom? Any of you here this morning? <clears throat> okay. I would, uh, I would point this out. Um, it's interesting that the the test, Jesus lead, being led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Yeah. And that's an interesting point, you know, about Christian development. Yeah. Gerald, that, that's a great point. And, and, and it, wouldn't that not be surprising if Paul didn't have that same experience of, of, of being tempted? Because this is the most powerful Christian missionary the world's ever seen. And so... To trip him up would have been, I think there would have been great incentive for that. So, uh, excellent point. <clears throat> but let me share with y'all what's very significant, I think. And, and I, we should also think about it in terms of our own lives. But Paul had a new worldview in which to see life and spiritual issues. Think about it. He went from being a legalistic Jew to being a, who hated the church, who thought it was the great enemy to becoming one of them. He went from believing in one God, kind of a, a monotheistic view of God, to the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So he saw life through a completely different lens. I remember Tim Keller saying that all of your thoughts and all of your reasoning flows from the way you view God. I ask you to think about that. Paul understood that. You know, two weeks ago, we talked about how upset he was with these Jewish Christians who were trying to add to the gospel. Who basically, the, 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 they, um, they didn't understand that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and you don't add anything to that. <coughs> And so Paul recognized that if you have a false view of God and a false view of spiritual reality, it can distort so much of your life. So Paul's worldview has shifted dramatically. His view of God had changed dramatically. I don't know if you remember this. Um, it's, it's in one of my books, and I find it really interesting that a number of years ago, I mean, it might be 15 or 20 years ago, this 55-volume series came out called The Great Books of the Western World. 55 volumes, probably each volume was maybe 500 pages. This massive, massive work. 
And the purpose was to present the most important ideas that scholars and intellectuals have considered and investigated and debated over the course of human history. So it was very comprehensive. But what's so interesting is, in this huge series, the most, the longest essay was on God. And a lot of people didn't like that. And when Mortimer Adler, who was not a Christian at the time, he was a philosopher, philosophy teacher at the University of Chicago. He became a Christian at the age 82. He lived to be 98. <clears throat> but when he was asked that, I love what he said. I love his response, even though he was not a Christian at the time. I don't think he was. But he said, the reason that the essay on God is, the, is by far the longest of all that's in this series, he says, it's because more consequences for life follow and flow from that one issue than any other. And this is, again, why Keller believes your view of God is the foundation of your thinking, and it impacts the lens through which you see life. And so Paul, the apostle, was now looking at life through a completely different lens than Saul of Tarsus. So I think we could say this three-year period was a time of training and learning to prepare him for the work that God had appointed him to do. Now, what does this have to do with me and you? Well, don't you think this is this is pretty interesting? Think about if you are a Christian today, and we probably got over thirty people involved in this today. If you if you're a Christian today, and I believe all of you are, then there is a time in the past that you became a Christian. You were not born, even though you might have been born in a Christian family, you can't say I was born a Christian because you were not. There's a moment in time in the past when you put your faith in Christ and surrendered, repented, and you enter into a relationship with him. Now, I, I, I know personally kind of the day i can't give you a date it was in in march of 1974 i know i was in daytona beach florida <clears throat> but i know people one of the godless men i know said i can't tell you the day i just know it was in this period of time in my life but the question i want to ask is so once that happens what's supposed to happen next once a person becomes a christian what should happen? What should be the objective of that person who becomes a Christian? Charlie. One thing that happened to me initially is <clears throat> how does God fit into my life? That was wrong. <laughs> it took me a while to figure out how do I fit into God's plan? What is God's good, plan Charlie. for me? And I need to walk and listen and grow in that and not, you know, that's, 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 that's how my sin, what can God do? That's excellent. That's excellent. And he used that word grow. I think people would say growing spiritually. Isn't it in a state of becoming? 
It is you. It, it, it's it's and it will it will uh, it will last the rest of your life. Right. Yeah, I, I like that because <clears throat> when I think about all of the, the the different terminology to use, what should happen to my life? I become a Christian. What should happen next? And um, one of the things very clearly, Paul, is that God wants us to become Christ-like. And I, I like to use that word become because it happened, you, you, it, it, the transformation takes place over the course of your lifetime. But it needs to be happening because you've heard me say this before. Our real problem today is that most men are most interested in what they're experiencing in life and what they're achieving in life. Where God says, I'm much more interested in the man you are becoming in life. And what the man he wants us to become is to be like Jesus. <laughs> Remember the things we said, what Christ-likeness is all about? Character, wisdom, love. Good, great relationships because you love well. And the great thing about all three of those, those can grow and increase over the course of your lifetime. So you can become more and more Christ-like over the course of your lifetime. It's something you can pursue the, the rest of your life. But you know, you need to know this. Character, wisdom, and love is the foundation of happiness. It is. The person you become, this is the irony of it. We're into what we experience, pursuing pleasurable experience, pursuing things that we love, which is, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the essence of life. What's so interesting is that the man you become will impact what you experience. It's the, it's the, it's the foundation of happiness. Now, I, I'm going down a rabbit hole here. We got we to get back, back, back on track here. Um, I want everybody, this is very interesting, and I want everybody, if you would, to turn to first, just turn, you're, you're right, just turn back to the books and you'll hit 1 Corinthians. If you would go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I need somebody to read verse 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 2. Do I have a volunteer? Should I call on someone? <laughs> Donnie, you want to read it for us? Sure. I will. I'll read it. Help, not solid food. But you were not yet ready for it. Instead, you are still not ready. Indeed, you are still not ready. Isn't that interesting? He uses a metaphor. And what's the metaphor? Taking in milk initially and then taking in solid food which would be kind of a growth process, wouldn't you say? When you're a baby, you take in milk. As, as that baby gets grows, they start eating solid food, and they, we're still doing that today. But isn't it interesting, he says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it, but indeed even now you're not yet able. And it's like he's saying you, you should be able to you should be on solid food right now, but you're not. You're still on milk. The writer of Hebrews says something similar, a little stronger though. He says this is uh, Hebrews five, 
12 through 14, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be teaching others. But the problem is you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And it strikes me that, and by the way, in, in my preparation, I went and read a great commentary on the book of Hebrews by a guy by the name of <clears throat> Neil Lightfoot. Warren, I wonder if it's a relative of yours. Um, and what we learned uh, about what should be going on in our lives as Christians is that we should be moving towards spiritual maturity where you get to a point where you can turn around and you can teach someone else. And that's God's will for all Christians to move towards spiritual maturity. But according to the writer of Hebrews, too many remain immature or babes. It'd be like a 12 year old boy who still drinks baby formula. But Lightfoot also says this, a major part of really maturing is to be able to distinguish and discern teaching and doctrine, that which is false versus that which is true and biblical. That if you're basically, let's say you're out of town and you go to a church and the guy gets up and starts preaching and he, he's preaching something that and it may just be minor, but he preaches something that's not true. We should be able to recognize that. We should be able to discern that. And so mature Christians should be able to discern false doctrine first, that which is true. And this includes, this is a biggie, moral issues, which is a real <clears throat> problem today in the church. But I'll share with you my own story. I don't, we don't talk about the church. Um, how this happened, and talking about worldview, particularly as it relates to moral issues, and how I'll, I'll share with you how I had a major shift in my view of a moral issue. Um, I became a Christian in, in early 74, and the first few years of being a believer, um, I thought, and had always thought, that abortion was okay. In fact, it just logically made sense to me. If a woman has it, it gets pregnant and she doesn't want the baby, why bring a child into the world that's unwanted? That just made sense to me. And I believe that. Until having a discussion with a, a Christian that was much more mature than I, and he, he pointed out, you know, the word abortion is not in the Bible. But it's amazing what the scripture tells us about the unborn. You can read it in Jeremiah 1. You can read it in Psalm 139. God says, I formed you in your mother's womb. I knew you before you were even born. And so my worldview, and it's still, I guess, for the longest time, really began to shift as I got more and more understanding from the scripture about how to view life 
whether it's moral issues or whether it's spiritual issues. Let me stop here and see if anybody has a comment or question. It's a good, good place to, to do that. All right. Um, <clears throat> about 25 years ago, a guy shared with me an article that really had an impact. And it was art from uh, uh, the Orlando Centennial newspaper. It was, an, it was in the op-ed page. And I've shared this before, so if it sounds familiar, <clears throat> it's been a while since I've shared it. Uh, you've probably heard it before from me. And I'm not sure where he got his info from, but I kind of sense that, that he's somewhat accurate. This is what he says. This is the right article. Only 5% of the population has a clearly defined strategy for their lives. He said the other 95%, he says they live reactively. Their lives are nothing more than a, than a response to what happens to them. And all of us understand that. I mean, have you ever had, this? these are things I got to do today and all of a sudden things start happening and you start reacting. And you don't get done what you needed to get done. That's kind of the way life can be. But this is what he said, and this is pretty interesting. He said, this is the problem. They have no plan. He's talking about the 95%. They have no plan to make life conform to their dreams, their goals, their mission in life. And I think there's truth in what he said from this standpoint. I think if we all look back on our lives, we've had certain dreams that we wanted for, our, for us, our lives, our marriage, our families. Uh, or we've had certain goals. I think everybody probably has some kind of goal when they enter the new year. But he said, what he said was interesting. He's not, he's saying that it's not, they don't have dreams or goals or objectives. He says they have no plan to make it happen. That's the big thing that Stephen Covey says, and I'm going somewhere with this guys. So hang in there. Stephen Covey says, you know, you have to have, as you have an objective, you have to come up with a plan and then the plan needs to be able to be put into your calendar. So it becomes a reality. Now, all of this that I'm talking about, guys, has great application to the spiritual realm and our spiritual lives. The good question is, do we have any real spiritual objectives in our lives that we can easily identify and articulate? Do I have a vision for my spiritual life, for my life as a Christian? But more significantly, what does God desire for my life? What are his objectives for my life as a Christian man? Because I think it's real easy to go through life, like this guy said in the Orlando paper, to drift through life with no spiritual objectives at all. So this is a great challenge I think we all have, and, and this is going somewhere. Um, but this may be the most important thing I tell you today. We as human beings function best when we're moving towards objectives. This is how your life flourishes, that you have objectives and you, are, you have a plan and you are moving towards that objective. And so as we've, we've said this morning, what was God's objectives for a Christian to grow spiritually? 
course, that that probably needs more definition. To know God at a deeper level, to move towards spiritual maturity, to become Christ-like, those are all, I think, very worthy. But I do believe, guys, all of this is embodied in some significant scripture in Matthew, which were really Jesus's last words to his people before he left. So if you would turn to Matthew 28, and while we're doing that, if you have a comment or question, fire it away. Matthew 28. We're going to read verses 18 through 20. Robert Jolly, how about reading those for us, would you? Matthew 28. 18 through 20, the last three verses in Matthew. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thank you. Notice that Jesus did not say, Go out and make a bunch of Christian converts. In fact, that's probably the biggest struggle in this is just reality of the evangelical organizations that go out and have these mass evangelical events is what happens after the a person's converted to Christ. He says you need to make disciples of them. And so he's Jesus in these verses that Robert read is telling these men who, along with Paul, would lead the early church, he was telling them this is the goal of the church, that they would take the gospel out into the world, let it penetrate people's lives, and then train them to be disciples. And that was how the early church functioned. My concern, I, I, I'm concerned that the church has lost this objective. I, th I don't think it's changed. I don't think there's a modern objective versus an early church objective. In fact, there's some scripture, I think, that really helps us understand this. And since we're kind of running out of time, let me just read this to you real quick. Um, this is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And it says, He being God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers. And what are these people supposed to do? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, and who are the saints? Who are the saints? All of y'all are saints. Do y'all know that? <laughs> It's the word that Paul used for Christians, the saints. But he's saying, for the equipping of the saints, who then will go out and do the work of service and build up the body of Christ. You see the plan? That God gave certain men, certain people, gifts and abilities, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, 
And their job is to go and equip all the Christians who then go out and do the work of service and build up the body of Christ. And that involves a lot, the work of service. But we've lost that. You see, this is the way it's supposed to be. Let me give you a hypothetical. Let's just take a hypothetical church. Now, let's say it has 1,000 members. And they have three pastors. And they have other church staff. But they have three pastors, a senior pastor and two associate pastors. Too many Christians in that church, or too many, I won't say, we're, this is hypothetical, but too many people think those three guys are supposed to go out and do the work of service and build up the body of Christ. It's their responsibility. That's what we pay them to do. But what if that church functioned differently and these three pastors equipped those 1,000 people and then they went out to do the work of service and built up the body of Christ? Think of what a powerful force in the world that we could be if that's the way the church functioned today. And I'm, I'm pro-church, guys. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm pro-church. Anybody want to comment on that? I got one final thing and we'll be done. Anybody? All just, right. Just say this, the one of the things that I believe makes uh, what we're describing is Christian life because you have to do life together. You're dealing with a bunch of uh, damaged people, or at least this is my experience. You know, I was damaged when I came in. You're talking about addictions. You're talking about irresponsibility, and to have somebody disciple someone like that is, I mean, you have to have a fatherly type attitude almost. Uh, I believe you. Um, have to be willing to hurt for this person. Uh, and, um, you know, that's just not necessarily attractive um, for everyone, you know, so there you go. I, think, I think you're right. And that's the good news is, uh, is that you got, we're, we're all part of the body of Christ. And I think some, I think everybody could disciple someone else. So I, I do need to say that, but, you know, we all have different abilities. We all have different spiritual gifts. And that's why God says, if, if we, going back to the example of the thousand people, of those thousand people, all have different gifts and abilities. Um, yeah, I, I do think one of my gifts is evangelism, not street evangelism, not from the pulpit, but one-on-one. -on -one. And I love doing it. Um, but I think you're right. I, but, but the fact is, all of us have certain spiritual gifts. All, all of us, bottom line, we've talked about this a lot. I think God has different things he wants us to do. It may be in your work. You may be as an employer. Obviously, he wants to use us in our families. But that I, I've said this many times. Some of you may not have heard it. But I think that the, a Christian man, his approach to life needs to be Lord, I am your servant. What is your assignment for me? I pray, and this is the way Apostle Paul, he would pray, God, I pray that you would open up doors for service. And if you'll just take that approach, <clears throat> get ready. Somebody will come, come walking through that door. And God will want, you to use, will want to use you in that person's life. Maybe a poor person that wants you to need your help. Maybe a person with marital problem. There are all kind. There are all kind of ways to serve out there, guys, and that needs to at least be our mindset. Now, let, me, let me let me wrap this up. Um, 
it's kind of interesting. Um, I wrote this down. Where are we all spiritually? Are we equipped to be used by God in the world? That should be our goal. But I remember a number of years ago, my wife and I, it was in late December. We were going to spend New Year's down at the beach. I think we were meeting somebody down there. And we were driving down the beach. It was probably December 29th to 30th. And we passed by a church. And there was a sign in the church. It kind of reminds me, Charlie, got what you just said a minute ago. And the sign said, and I think their intentions were probably good, but think about what they said. This is what the sign said. Let's assume this was 2005. Make Christ a part of your life in 2005. Make him part of your life. And unfortunately, I think that's the way so many Christians approach Jesus. He's one of many compartments in my life. I've got my work, I've got my, my, my marriage, I've got raising my kids, i got my golf game, i got all these compartments. And Jesus is one of the compartments. But Jesus don't want to be a compartment. He doesn't want to be part of your life. He wants to be at the center of your life. He wants to be the king and lord of your life. And he wants us to be his disciples. <clears throat> who can go out and do the work of service, whatever that might be, and build up the body of Christ. And I mean, I'm going to close by sharing this with y'all. This is something I don't, I don't get excited about too much, but I'm pretty excited about this. Um, the center is exploring. I'm leading the charge here. <laughs> We're exploring ways on how to best equip the men who really desire for this, who really desire to become disciples, who really desire to move towards spiritual maturity. And so I ask you to think about that for your own life. What do you really want to happen to you spiritually? What do you want to happen spiritually in your life? We want to help you. We want to help you. And I hope to have something ready by the fall. And it's something that you'll probably do on your own. I'm not, that's not to say you don't need somebody to disciple you. I'm not saying that. But to, to reach a lot of people, it'll be something you can do on your own at home. And you can even make it part of your quiet time, your devotion, whatever you call it. Comment, question? Let me let me share this with you. I, this was not part of my original notes. Um, Wednesday morning before study, I happened to, I was reading the, the Bible and I happened to read this verse. It's John 9, 4. And it goes like this. This is Jesus talking. And notice this, he, he's talking to the disciples. He could be talking to us. And notice he doesn't say I. He doesn't say I must work the works. He says we, all of us, we must work the works of God who sent me as long as it is day. But night is coming when no man can work. Guys, we, we, we are operating in the day. And I pray that God gives all of us many, many more years. But there's a lot of us that are clearly in the fourth quarter. But we're still in the day. We still have opportunities to be used by God. But night is coming. Our life will end one day. And then our work will be over. So... The challenge I think we all have is, yeah, I want to do the work of God, whatever he has for me. 
We need to be getting equipped. As Paul said, it has a life. It needs to be going on the rest of your life. I guess we, that growth needs to be for the rest of your life. But night is coming when no man can work. About four till. Anybody have a final comment or question? Any, we got a, we got a big group here, so prayer requests may be difficult. Unless, does somebody have a real major prayer, prayer request they'd like me to pray? Okay, let's close. Lord, thank you. I'm grateful for these men. Grateful for their lives. Grateful for uh, just their, their support of our work. Um, Lord, we thank you for what you reveal to us in Scripture about spiritual objectives what you desire for us. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, continue to do a work in our lives. Father, help us to remember that it's our responsibility to seek you. And you tell us when we seek you, we'll find you. But you also tell us that you reward those who seek you that you don't withhold any good thing from those who seek you, and that your favor is on those who seek you. And help us remember, Father, that's our responsibility. Help us to make that the top priority in our lives. And we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, Founding Director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.